Thank you for listening to this edition of the ESG podcast. We're joined today by Andros Payne, who is the managing director and founder partner of Humatica, a specialist consultancy that helps business leaders and private equity sponsors build organizations to deliver superior returns. Andros interestingly started his career as an aerospace engineer in California, then worked as a consultant with Oliver Wyman and as a tech entrepreneur in Europe before setting up Humatica in 2003. Since then, he's worked with hundreds of private equity-backed portfolio companies and has observed the steadily increasing importance of ESG. In this regard, the firm he founded, Humatica, has focused from the beginning on quantifying and codifying the governance practices in companies that drive their ability to create value. So I suppose my first question, Andros, is why does an aerospace engineer suddenly decide that this is a niche in the market that you think nobody else in the traditional management consultancy field um, was occupying? Yeah, thank you, Clive. Uh, Obviously, there are many different consultancies out there already, so this is a completely legitimate question. And I would say uh, the reason to found Humatica goes back to experiences having worked with literally hundreds of companies in different markets in Europe and in North America, and, and having observed carefully the differences in the way people behave in these organizations and the way that these organizations are governed. And linking that those observations with the performance of those companies in their markets, it seemed then clear to find ways of more exactly measuring behaviors and measuring the quality of governance inside organizations so that these uh, elements could be improved or transferred between companies. I would say in particular, having experience worked with state-run monopolies in Europe and observing Mm -hmm. the way organizations behave and the way that these organizations are governed in contrast with working with companies in highly dynamic technology markets in California. And obviously, there are very big differences in the way these corporations are managed and governed. And these differences are, to a large extent, driven by the environments in which they compete and the demands that these environments place on the way people interact inside organizations. And as mentioned in your introduction, being uh, coming out from an engineering background, I found it quite obvious and exciting to start to put hard facts and numbers around these differences in the way organizations are governed and managed and linking that with their ability to succeed in their markets and deliver value growth over the long term. I'm still intrigued by this transition you made as an aerospace engineer into uh, this, but we'll maybe come back to that. Corporate governance can be really difficult to strategize. Um, but it's obvious in hindsight once it's gone wrong. And I, I give you an example of Wirecard, current breaking story, or WorldCom, which I worked on nearly 20 years ago now, and Woolworths. Not all companies that go broke begin with a W, by the way. But it was interesting, I thought, that those are the three organizations that were very well known who, for different reasons, have suddenly come unstuck. And it, it occurred to me that when you first meet a client, Andros, how quickly can you assess whether that organization can be helped? or whether actually the task is going to be impossible. Yeah, well, I think, Clive, there the indications that there are governance issues are quite easy to pick up. In other words, the symptoms of governance issues are quite easy to pick up. Those can be anything from 
poor financial performance, a company that's not growing, a company that's very unprofitable. Um, you know, it can be things like uh, high employee turnover. You know, these are kind of, I would say, the uh, telltale symptoms that there are issues in the governance of uh, the company. I would say that every company can improve its governance significantly and even going further than that is improve the quality of interactions and behaviors and the way organizations are managed. That's absolutely doable. In fact, it's probably some of the, the least expensive and changes that you can fundamentally make in an organization because it's not so much about making a capital investment. Uh, or or high cost. However, it's there at the same time some of the most complex improvements or changes to be made. Um, you know, obviously those indications of uh, where do we potentially have problems. You've mentioned a few examples that we would see as having different root causes or symptoms that and symptoms that we could pick up. In the case of WorldCom, there was a quite uh, high profile uh, CEO Bernie Ebers. Uh, I would say, which exemplifies some of the most common symptoms that we find uh, that are easy to pick up, and that is around power concentrations inside uh, companies. Uh, and that can be particularly with the senior executive who is highly charismatic. And the effect of this can be that other important information that needs to come to light, either to avoid risks or to grow value, that that information doesn't get connected within the organization to the right people in order to trigger some type of action. Uh, so these are quite, I would say, common uh, symptoms uh, and the changes that are necessary to uh, improve the governance are not rocket science, but they are a number of different changes, mostly starting with the leadership, but then uh, throughout the organization, other measures to ensure that the behaviors you have inside the company are consistent with uh, a good governance, a governance which is able to systematically avoid risks that every company is exposed to and systematically find new opportunities to add value to clients. I know it's said that the major assets of a business tend to drive home um, every night and you hope that they arrive back in the morning. Um, I, it's the people that make an organization. Uh, but I did wonder whether, from your perspective, um, is there a size of organization that Humatica has a sweet spot for? Do you, for example, do you prefer working for a privately owned business that can perhaps, you know, get things done more quickly than a publicly owned business? Or do you even perhaps prefer working in the private sector? How, how does this manifest itself in pragmatic terms? Yeah, I think every single organization, whether that's a charity, a foundation, or a for-profit organization, needs to think about its governance as being fundamental to achieving their purpose, uh, whatever purpose that is. So um, what we do with Humatica is applicable to all different organizations. However, uh, there are certain organizations where our services make more sense. It's not driven so much by size. It's also not driven so much by what type of jurisdiction they're operating in, but it is driven by the highest level governance in those organizations. Because governance improvements most always require changes in the way 
organizations are led. And that means that our services and the improvements in governance really need to have the blessing of the board of directors uh, for us to be very effective. And it turns out that this highest level governance and the requirement on management to be transparent about the governance processes which they have put in place, that is uh, mostly, we can find that in private equity backed companies. Uh, the private equity um, investors are quite sensitive to governance uh, benefits mm. and they also have a very clear objective which is to ensure that their companies are the most successful in their markets and they don't have a lot of I would say the uh, political uh, roadblocks that you can oftentimes find in other governance structures outside of private equity to having uh, influence on leaders uh, to improve the governance in their organizations. So yes, in a nutshell, we work mostly with private equity uh, and the reason for that is the uh, highest level governance uh, responsibility that private equity investors have. Mm. Now you mentioned, I think I mentioned at the top of the podcast that you've been um, running Humatica for 17 years. Um, have any patterns yet emerged in your mind um, when you meet senior management teams um, are there what do what do senior management teams frequently overlook in your experience when it comes to their own corporate governance? Yeah, I think this is a great question, Clive, because I believe that we really are at this moment transitioning uh, from the industrial age to the information age organization. And uh, the requirements on leaders change dramatically. You know we had about two hundred and fifty to three hundred years of successful, uh, industrial age management, uh, which was primarily focused on managing large numbers of uh, industrial uh, employees uh, who were oftentimes linked with some type of capital asset platform, whether that's a manufacturing site or a bank network or things. Well, we've seen through automation and process improvements that more and more employees are what we call knowledge workers today. Uh, that is that they they know they have an email and their work is not so much uh, physical as it is um, collab working collaboratively uh, to uh, understand before the competitors where they can add more value, where the company can add more value and making decisions and helping to get decisions implemented. And I think this uh, fundamental shift in what is the nugget creating value and that it is truly uh, especially these knowledgeable employees and it's not just the uh, trained chemist it's really anyone in a company today that has an email that has partial responsibility for this continual adaptation process and the uh, excellent governance processes and this is where i would say many senior leaders have not yet come to grips with what kind of changes in the way these organizations are led are needed based on this shift in, in the core uh, assets which are creating value. I'm, I'm grateful you mentioned that because if you look at the news at the moment, certainly the business pages, um, ESG reporting is currently being driven by the investment management sector and ESG managed funds appear to have outperformed um, non-ESG managed funds, as we as we both know, um, in the course of the last six to 18 months. 
Um, I suppose two parts to my next question. Does that surprise you? And um, if ESG is such a successful way of looking at an organization's environmental, social impact and corporate governance strategy, shouldn't all organizations have an ESG profile or a strategy at least? Bearing in mind, as you've just said, all, all individuals within an organization, if they have an email, have a direct responsibility for how that organization is perceived. Yeah, that's correct, Clive. And I think we are absolutely on a path on which at some point in time, these uh, requirements that are uh, given by ESG uh, will be mandated, uh, legally mandated. Uh, and this is uh, a path that's coming. It's relevant for all companies and, and all organizations, not just uh, for-profit, but also non-profit. Uh, so yeah, I think this is an evolution. It started really with the uh, investors, and that is the what they call limited partners, which are the pension funds of the world and the sovereign wealth funds, which have placed re certain requirements on how their uh, capital is invested. Uh, so it's um, quite international in its scope uh, to begin with because these funds are investing internationally. Uh, but it's also now, I would say in the last few years, taken up much more in the public market environment and especially the multinational public companies that also see the great benefits in uh, the frameworks that uh, ESG gives them to think about their business and think about uh, how they operate and potential risks and avoiding these risks in the future and being compliant with um, the long-term objectives uh, that ESG specifies. So yeah, I think this is uh, it's something that's not going to slow down um, and it is going to permeate to all different sectors of the economy and all different types of organizations. Talking of those organizations, I mean, does your business see that um, the landscape having changed, you're perhaps going to earn a, a reputation for helping people strategize the G of ESG rather than, say, the environmental or the social impact element of ESG? I mean, a, a lot of the conversations that we've been having, and indeed, I think one of our first between you and me, was that ESG has emerged from what other people would have otherwise called corporate social responsibility. The challenge with having CSR only strategies is that it was very difficult to establish metrics between sectors and even within a sector measuring an organization's performance um, across the piece. Whereas ESG at least breaks that down. And if CSR is incorporated in environmental and um, social impact measurement, Corporate governance is something entirely different, but perhaps much more important than the E and the, the S in ESG. Yeah, no, it's also... Um, do you agree? Yeah. Yes, I do. Um, the, uh, it is interesting that um, ESG as an entirety has definitely now come into practice um, in many firms. Uh, the E and the S part, uh, I would say, have been more... Um, mature in measuring performance of organizations. The G is, in our view, less mature. This is the area that we focus on. Uh, and interestingly, uh, I think you are right that if you have the governance right, if you measure it and you monitor it and you optimize it systematically, then the E and the S 
should follow naturally uh, oh. as, as being um, compliant. But um, yeah, that's the G is the part where we find there's the least number of tools or specialized services to be able to measure performance and uh, therefore improve it. Mm. Now, you're, that's helpful. You're, you're speaking to me from Zurich. Uh, I just wondered whether, and, and you mentioned, of course, that the you know, investment managers are investing in organizations around the world. But from your perspective, having conversations with senior leadership teams, are there international differences country to country in the perception of ESG's relevance at the moment, in your opinion? Yeah, so far, Clive, I would say not much. Uh, because it's been driven by these multinational investor or multinational corporate organizations. Uh, so there's not been much difference between jurisdictions. However, I think there is an emerging amount of difference uh, based on what we mentioned briefly earlier that increasingly ESG requirements will be mandated and ESG reporting will be mandated. In particular, here in Switzerland, there is an initiative currently going through Parliament called the Swiss Coalition for Corporate Justice. And what it specifies, and this will come to an initiative before this, the Swiss people uh, in uh, sometime after it's gone through Parliament uh, to be revised. But basically, what this rule requires is that all Swiss-based corporations will be liable for, in Switzerland, for any kind of uh, ESG-type uh, infractions they have in any of their operations around the world. Uh, now, if they um, are able to report accurately where they have emerging risks, ESG risks, uh, then they aren't going to face the same uh, penalties, obviously, than if they didn't report these things and then uh, had some type of um, incident somewhere around the world. So this is a, a really big change, uh, and if it goes through, I think it can be a leading example for how other countries may start to mandate elements of the ESG requirements. Well, well, I, I think we're at a very exciting time in history as far as um, environmental, social impact and corporate governance reporting is concerned, because I read this morning that for the first time in a decade, BP is thinking of reducing its a dividend, which would be unheard of in previous years. Yes, COVID has had a an impact, but actually, the organisation's place in the world, I think, is probably driving driving the strategic decision to not pay as big a dividend as previously. And and I think it's down to the fact that all of us as individuals want to work in organisations that we think have a, a proper social purpose that aren't polluting. Um, the environment. Um, but more importantly, I think, and this is where I think G is probably 10 times bigger than E and the S, um, we want to work for organisations which are fair and transparent. And I think the, the new generation of millennials and Generation Z are going to expect nothing else. So we are living in very exciting times, and I imagine you're going to become extremely busy going forward. <laughs> Yeah. If, you're, if, you're, if you're perceived as the, the organization that helps people with governance specifically, um, 
Yeah, maybe so, one other point, Clive, that I, I think would be it's following up really on the uh, question about uh, how leaders are dealing with this. You are hitting on a very important point is that also the demographic today of people coming into the working environment and this aspect that they're knowledge workers, that has huge implications for the way that this critical resource is governed. And the, I would say, old kind of Frederick Taylor approach of command and control mm -hmm. simply does not work for multiple reasons. Uh, and this is something I think leaders are absolutely struggling with. So the things like what you also mentioned in terms of what is our overall purpose? Is this purpose clearly understood or are values, including around uh, environmental sustainability um, and social justice, are these values clearly understood by all our knowledgeable people so that they can better make frontline decisions on their own. These are different, I would say, levers of how do you uh, make sure that this critical resource of our people is optimally uh, deployed and also consistent with our ESG goals as an organization. But it is a different type of influence which these leaders need to exert than perhaps uh, what uh, leaders have and managers have been using throughout most of the industrial age. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I, I'm just hoping that we can use what influence we have to bring the ESG Foundation and the resources on our website um, to senior leaders' attention. I mean, there's it, there's this podcast, there are others in the series. Um, we are maintaining um, a daily digest of the most current stories on uh, ESG and there's also for people who haven't yet looked at the website but maybe hear this podcast first some examples of, of ESG reports and um, in the showcase uh, we, we've tried to select ESG reports from many and varied sectors um, but that's going to that's going to grow in the future. Um, what, what we don't have in the future, I'm afraid, immediately is a little bit more time. I could listen to Andres to you for a long, long time, but unfortunately, that tour of ESG from Switzerland all the way to the UK um, has to come to an end today. So thank you very much for, for your time. I do appreciate it. Um, to any listener of the ESG podcast, thank you very much um, for giving us your attention as well. And please spread the word, um, share the link to this podcast, ideally to the senior leadership teams who we can improve in the future for all our benefit. Thanks very much, Andros. Thank you.